book of Second Peter this morning. Book of Second Peter. It's a good morning. It's a good morning. We got we got a lot to do. We're going to go pretty deep here, uh, but hang with me. I think it's going to be a good ride for this chapter as we go through Second Peter, uh, chapter three, which is where we're at, uh, and it is a fitting end to this epic journey that we have been on. Uh, it is a it is a a, a, a great way to kind of put a, put a bow on this, because here's the, here's the thing. It's always a big deal whenever we finish a series here at Providence, whenever we, we complete a book, because we take a while usually to go through these books. It's always a big deal whenever we do that. Uh, but this one is especially uh, a, a big deal for us, because uh, we've, been, we've been kind of on this journey for a long time long time going through not just first and second Peter, uh, but really uh, as we've traced this idea of exile throughout, uh, throughout Scripture. And I think that, that this chapter is a great kind of way for us to, uh, to wrap that up uh, because it will talk to us about the end of our exile. But not only that, it will exhort us on how we should live Today, so it will give us something to look forward to while telling us how we should live uh, today. So it's it's looking forward, but still rooted and, and keeping our feet grounded here in this uh, day. So so like I said, we're going to be in, in second second Peter chapter three. We got a lot to do. We're finishing this idea of not home yet, but today we get to talk about when we're home, when we're actually there in this place. Now, we've been on this journey talking about exile and not being home since uh, uh, really this time last year, actually a little bit earlier, first of the year last year. So almost every message that we've given in the last year has been tied to this idea of exile. We started in the book of Ezra. We went through Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Zechariah, Haggai, uh, we've traced the overarching theme from the garden uh, in Genesis to the garden in Revelation. Uh, we went through First Peter and Second Peter. And all of those books, everything that we looked at through that, all of those were at least in part telling the story of exile. And today, we get to tie all of that together. Um, we get to talk about whenever we can stop saying not home yet and when we are actually home. And, and this, could, this could perhaps be uh, entitled like homecoming, uh, or at the very least, this, this, uh, this, this, this uh, chapter could be called your ride is here. Like it's, it's, we've, got, we've got a lot, and there's gonna be, I think it's going to be really good uh, this morning. So uh, to stop belaboring the point, let's just get going in Second Peter chapter 3 and see where uh, it takes us. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He's reminding them of something they already know. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. This is what we covered uh, all the way back in chapter 1. The apostles and the prophets, reasons to know these things. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So just a reminder where we left off last week, if you weren't here last week, false teaching is what Peter was addressing in chapter 2. The danger of false teaching and the danger of following that false teaching. And really in these three verses, what what Peter does is he ties together chapter 1 with everything that we looked at in chapter 2. So he brings those together before he moves on into the rest of 
uh, the chapter. He says, uh, he's tying those together, saying what we should be listening to. And then he's tying that with his warning uh, in chapter 2 about how we should be concerned about false teachers. He says, remember what the prophets have said, but be careful that you're following the right voices. Because there are those, the ones I warned you about in the last chapter, the ones I warned you about in the previous paragraph, that will simply be telling you what you want to hear. And they will be following their own sinful desires. So so Peter's making this transition to the kind of conclusion of his argument. Now last week we kind of set this up. Last week we we, we kind of put this one on a tee, but we never fully kind of... Kind of, kind, of, kind of took our swing at it because we never talked about what the false prophets were teaching, uh, what the false teachers were, were focused on. We talked about how there were false teachers and how today that works itself out in all kinds of ways, following the same kind of pattern that those teachers were following uh, in Peter's day. But, but we didn't talk about what they were teaching specifically in Peter's day. And now we don't know exactly what they were saying, We can kind of guess, and most people think this is more of a a generalized uh, idea here, Uh, but but we can follow the argument that he lays out in this chapter, and it'll give us a pretty good good idea of of at least the topic that they were focusing their false teaching on. So let's let's see Peter's response here in verse 4, and then throughout the rest of the chapter, see if we can figure out what this teaching was that they were giving. It's pretty pretty straightforward here, 2 Peter 3, 4. They will say, this is the false teachers, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So here it is, pretty simple, straightforward. These false teachers were essentially making a naturalistic argument, one I'm sure you are probably familiar with yourselves. There's nothing new under the sun. They are using this argument to mock Christians that believed that Jesus would come back that Jesus would return. Essentially, they're saying, oh, Jesus is coming back? Well, tell me when. Tell me where. Tell me how. I want to know what it looks like. I can't see him. So Christian, explain to me how you think Jesus is going to come back. Did I miss him? I don't think I did. You said I wouldn't miss him. Well, where is he? Oh, you think your dead Savior is going to come back from the afterlife one of these days, and we're supposed, to be, we're supposed to be all excited about that and looking forward to that, and you think we're the ones that are missing something. Actually, you know what, guys? I think you guys are the ones that are missing something because that sounds ridiculous. You Christians are crazy. That's basically what they're saying. Peter said it in a lot less words than that, but that's pretty much what they're, what they're saying. Their arguments are simple. Since creation till today, what I see happening is the sun comes up, the sun goes down, and that's a day. And you know what's going to happen tomorrow? The sun's going to come up, and the sun's going to go down, and that's another day. And that's what's happened every day of my life, and it's what's going to happen every day of my life. Do you know how I know? Because it's what's happened every day of my life. Like, that's their argument. That is what they are saying, and it's a good argument. It's a solid argument. It's an argument from experience. It's an argument based in Enlightenment-style logic, but it's a good argument. They will make their judgment based on what they can see, what they can feel, and what they can experience. And it doesn't look to them like Jesus is coming back anytime soon. This is much the same of what many of us will run into whenever we try to talk to our non-Christian friends, co-workers, family members, 
when we try to throw out some of these things. This is exactly the response that we will get. It is the general response of an unbelieving world that it's crazy for us to believe some of the things that we believe. From virgin births, to resurrections from the dead, to saviors walking on water, to the return of a king on a horse to save his people. It sounds nuts. Can we just all say that out loud and agree that some of the stuff that we believe sounds ridiculous? It's okay to say that, right? It's okay to say that what we believe is going to happen sounds crazy. We can understand the argument. We can understand why they're telling Peter this and mocking him. We can understand our non-Christian friends when they say this. It's like, yeah, I get it. It does sound kind of crazy, but I truly believe that it happened. And then we can lay out all kinds of reasons why. Peter has already testified as to some of those reasons why. But it's a good argument. So what does Peter do? Mr. You're always supposed to have an answer. This is what he told us in chapter 1. What is his answer to this argument that we are so familiar with? What does he do? How does he answer this type of critic? Well, in chapter 1, he tells us that we can trust our faith because of the witness of the apostles and the constantly affirmed and validated prophets. But what's the reason now? And what Peter's going to do is he's going to start talking about the end times and Jesus' return. That's his answer. That's how he's, he's, going, to, he's going to explain it. So here's, here's what he's going to do. Uh, he's going to get out this huge uh, timeline where he's going to explain some stuff. Uh, and, and you guys have probably seen some of these, right? He's going to get out these huge timelines with these charts. And he's going to talk about four horsemen. He's going to talk about blood moons. And he's going to talk about all this kind of stuff. And it gets kind of crazy and detailed. But in about six years, we'll get through all of these things. Maybe seven years. And you know that's an important year. So he's going to go through all of this different stuff. He's going to cover all of this. Uh, and then he's going to... Uh, give us a whole collection of books written by Tim LaHaye called Left Behind. And he's going he's gonna to have you read all of these books to tell you what's going to happen whenever Jesus comes back. And he's going to let us watch this sweet movie with Kirk Cameron in it. He's going to have us go through all of that, and that will explain things. And my favorite thing is that on Thursday nights, he's going to offer a class, and it's called Christian Prepping 101. Uh, Christian Prepping 101 for the end times. This is a real book, by the way. Um, the, the Amazon description, my favorite part of this, the Amazon description, uh, it says, are you a Christian and you want to know more about prepping? This book is for you. In case you were wondering by the title, if it didn't give it away, this book is for you. Christian Prepping 101. And there's something about bugs and uh, there's one other. You get a whole pack. It's, it's a lot. You get a lot. This is how Peter is going to respond to his critics. He's got all this stuff laid out and ready to go. Now, some of y'all are laughing not because of how ridiculous this stuff is, but because you've sat in these classes. You've sat in these classes. Some of y'all taught these classes. You've sat in these classes. You've, you've read the charts. You've been a part of all of this stuff. You've seen these things. Some of y'all have been in a class that had all of these things all loaded into one. And you've been fully on board with all of it. But that is not what Peter's going to do. So that's not what we're going to do this morning. So take a breath. Uh, it'll be all right. There's no, no horsemen, no blood moons, none of that kind of stuff. Um, Peter's argument is not one that's even rooted primarily in the future. Now, he's going to talk about the future, but that's not where he roots his argument about how we can believe that Jesus will return. He's going to look to the past. So let's look at Peter's response here. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 5. He says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, 
that the heavens existed long ago. So who, this is the false teachers. They deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the, word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, that's a paragraph. He says a lot right there. He says, you can laugh now if you want. Scoff all you want. Throw out your mockery. But your judgment is incomplete and short-sighted. You have only taken into account the short span of your life. We don't even need to talk about eternity. All we need to do is expand our scope to history. Let's just move out of your short span of your life and what your experience is, and let's just look at history just a little bit. It may be just an endless succession of days for you, but all of history has not been a Groundhog Day where everything just happens the same way every day. It is not just an endless succession of days. For starters, you may only know of a day with a sunrise and a sunset, but there was a time when there was no sun at all, when that did not exist at all, whenever God created the, the, the world, created everything that we know, and in the progression of creation, there was no sun at all. The light was Him. And so he says, he says, you may know, only know those days, but that is not the only days that the world has ever known. So you need to expand your view just a little bit. Because there was a time where there was no earth, no sky, no sun, no moon, until God spoke it into being and brought it to be. If God can do that, then surely he can come back anytime he wants. This is what Peter's argument is. If God, can do the, if, if God can do that, oh, you are short-sighted to judge what life and what things will be based simply on the fact that the sun has come up and the sun has gone down in your few years on this earth. Not only did God create, but God also destroyed this world too. At least in part when he sent the, the, the flood to cover the world. Peter's argument is the same God who creates is also the same God who destroys. You do well to remember that, you false teachers and you mockers, because here's the deal. Just as he created by his word before, just as he brought down judgment before, he now needs only to speak a word and the judgment will rain down again for all those that are his enemies. So be careful how you mock, non-believer. Be careful who you mock. You scoffer because your day will come. In essence, this is Peter's argument. The same God who created is the same God who destroys. And we have history of creation and we have the history of God's dealing with his creation to back that up. In essence, Peter moves his confidence and his faith from his own experience and from the writing of the prophets, that's chapter 1 and the previous paragraph, and now he affirms his belief in the return of Jesus on his understanding of history and his understanding of how God works and how he's worked before. Essentially, his argument is, if God has done this before, there's no reason to believe he can't and won't do it now. Especially since 
he told me and the prophets in the past that he was going to do it anyway. So like it, it double affirms his reasoning for why we should have faith in the first place. The testimony of the apostles, the testimony of the prophets, and the testimony of history, and the character and nature of God. They all affirm the fact that we should have confidence that this day will come. The day of the Lord will come. Peter then offers his final warning. A gracious one to those false teachers. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He says, your view of history suggests that each day will basically be like the one before it. That is your argument from history. And that's simply because that's all you've ever known. But what if each day has not been the same? What if each day has not been exactly the same? And what if that's not how it will always be? But what if, what if the reason in your life each day has been the same, not because God is negligent in His promise, but because God is gracious in His promise? What if your reasoning for not believing in who God is and that He will come back is, is actually the reason why you should understand the grace and the mercy of God? What if you've misinterpreted the signs? What if you've misinterpreted those days? You take it, the fact that the sun comes up and the sun goes down, that there is no God. But Peter wants you to know, the fact that the sun comes up and the sun goes down means there is a God and He's merciful. You've misunderstood what's happening in those sunsets and those sunrises. You've missed the point. God does not act in accordance with our sense of time, nor does He even act within our definition of of justice, because he is willing to show you mercy, even though you do not deserve it. This is the promise of what we have in Jesus. This is the deal. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. Justice is served. But if you are in Christ, that justice is laid on him, not on you. But it doesn't perfectly line up with all our categories. God doesn't fit into all those, whether we be talking about time, justice, mercy, grace, punishment. He handles that on his own accord. I'll be honest, to me, that is a compelling argument that Peter makes. He says, don't miss out on mercy because you've made some very poor assumptions about the way this world works and who God is and what he is capable of. Don't double down on your poor choices and your poor calculations. To do so would be to presume upon the mercy of God. And He will not tarry forever. Those in Noah's day made the same mistake. Now don't you do it. Friends, I tell you the same thing. Don't mistake the ordinary days of this life for the lack of God's care or the lack of His presence. 
Don't mistake those things for the fact that God isn't here. See them for what they are. God's patience and his mercy. Don't assume this world is all there is simply because it's all you can see. To do so would be a tragic mistake. It would be an eternal miscalculation on your part. I don't fully understand the whole sun and moon and the heavenly bodies will melt away and all that stuff. It's prophetic language. Honestly, when you read prophetic language, most of it, you're not meant to understand it. It's meant to kind of give you this generalized picture of where things are going. Will the, will the sun and the moon literally dissolve and be gone? Maybe. I, I mean, I don't know. Um, but that's not talking about blood moons right there. What that's talking about is the day of the Lord. You don't need to buy a prophecy book to explain this stuff to you. But don't miss Peter's message here. Don't get lost in the language and miss the message. Here's the thing. I mean, we, we, we joke about, about all this stuff, and, it, and I, I mean, some of it's, it's ripe for, for mockery. But listen, it's a common, almost cliche thing that, that preachers do. If you've spent much time in a church in your life, you've probably heard this. These, 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 these preachers talk about Jesus coming back in order to scare the pants off of people. They want to scare the daylights out of people. They build it up and they talk about the fire and the terrible cataclysmic judgment of Jesus that is coming. They will yell and they will scream about the suddenness and the sadness and the wrath being poured out and, they, they, they need, and, and your need to make sure that you are right before Jesus. Can, can I just be completely honest with you? Take the, the, the most terrifying, soul-searing, heart-wrenching, guilt-filled rant from any preacher that you want. It doesn't compare to how terrible that day will be. It does not compare. It does not compare to how bad that day will be for those that are not found in Christ. We do not have words for it. This is why we have this prophetic language that sounds so dire and terrifying. It is Peter trying to say, don't make this miscalculation. Don't do that. It will be far, far worse than anything you can imagine. It will be terrible. No preacher can scare you enough for what is going to happen. No, no preacher can, can communicate to you enough how bad it will be. Listen to how the prophet Malachi says it. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Zephaniah, the prophet, he says this, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I can't scare you enough. I wish I could. I cannot scare you enough. It's worse than anything you can imagine. When Jesus comes, it will be too late. And he comes as a judge. Make no mistake about it. 
And I hope that sits on you and you feel the weight of that this morning. I hope you feel the weight of it for yourself if you are not in Christ. I hope you feel the weight of it for your friends if they are not in Christ. I hope you feel the weight of it for this community, for this world that is apart from Christ. I hope you feel the weight of all of that. Do not make that miscalculation. I plead with you. Hear Peter's plea this morning. Be found in Christ. Be His. Because here's the thing. I mean, full period, stop. The day of the Lord will be more awful than you can imagine. Full stop. But here's the thing. As horrible as it will be, for those that are in Christ, it will be equally, if not more so, in its beauty, in its hope, in its love, in its mercy. Both of them should bring you to tears. Both of them. Let's read the rest of what Peter says as he continues in his argument. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since all those things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the, day, the, the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth which righteousness dwells. So he shifts. He changes his focus just a little bit. He says, now what? If this day of the Lord is a real thing and it's really this awful, what do we do about it? How do we live in light of that? What sort of lives should we be living? Should we live as though none of this matters anyway since God's just going to burn it all up? He says, no, we pursue holiness in Jesus. We watch our lives and pursue godliness. And it says we hasten the day. We hope for it and we pray it comes quickly. That is our hope. That is what we want. And you say, well, how does that work? How, how am I uh, godly? How am I holy? How does that work? It goes right back to the beginning of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have it in Christ. It is in Him. If we are found in Him, we have the power to live this way. That is the hope that we have. And so he says, live the way that you have been equipped to live. Find yourself in Jesus and hasten the day for him to come. Hurry the day along. Bring it along quickly. That is what the prayer is. Lord Jesus, come soon. That's a funny, that's a funny prayer to me whenever I think about that. Emily and I got married when we were uh, 19. We got married in the year 2000. We are looking at 22 years this year. I remember uh, it's either the fall of 98 or probably the spring of 99 going to a, uh, uh, I don't know if it was like a, like a Wednesday night sermon at the church that I was at at the time. I don't know that I, that I grew up in. I don't know if it was like part of a, a revival. I'm not exactly sure what it was. Um, but I remember going and being super excited to go to this because I wanted to go deeper. 
I wanted to go deeper and really study stuff. Emily was not interested in going to this at all because here's the thing. We were about to learn about the end times and when Jesus was going to come back. The title of the message was Why Jesus Will, parentheses, probably come back by the year 2000. That was the, that was the, uh, the sermon that I was going to hear. Uh, why Jesus will probably come back by the year 2000. And I was stoked to go deeper, man. I wanted my charts. I wanted my notes. I wanted all of it. I was fired up. I went. I listened intently. I took good notes. I was blown away by this guy's understanding of the book of Revelation and the insights that he had about how Jesus was coming back within the year. And I walked away absolutely convinced that it would be soon. So I, I show back up. I still remember this. I, I left that, went to Emily's house. We were... Um, we, 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 were, we were dating, we were already pursuing, heading towards marriage. I don't think we were quite engaged yet, but we knew it was coming. Uh, we knew marriage was, was, was there in front of us. And uh, she, Emily didn't want to be a part of any of this, like teaching here, any of this stuff. One, because all the end time stuff like freaked her out. Like it, it messed with her head. She didn't like any of it. Uh, and two, because we were supposed to get married in 2000. We were supposed to get married in June of 2000. And she was like, I don't want to hear any of that stuff. I'm not really interested in that. Uh, we had marriage plans. We weren't ready for Jesus to come back because we had things to do. Uh, I remember uh, in a Bible study and, and, a, and praying with her as, as a couple, we would regularly pray that Jesus would come back because that's what we're supposed to pray, but that he would hold off until after <laughs> June of 2000. Could you please just hold off a little bit? Um, and so all you preppers that had your stuff ready for Y2K and all you preppers that were ready for Jesus to come back in 2000, we messed the plans up. We prayed that he would not come back, and so he did not. Um, he listened to us, and you guys still have a lot of rice in your basement probably. Um, but, but seriously, 22 years ago, I couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that Jesus coming back was actually a good thing for me. Um, I had other plans. I had things in, in, in mind. I had, I had a life in front of me. I had all of these things in front of me that I was so excited about. I could understand it's supposed to be a good thing, but I couldn't really understand how it was supposed to be a great thing. I couldn't really understand how it was supposed to be the greatest thing. 22 years later, things have changed. That's not a dig at Emily or our marriage at all. That is not the point that I'm trying to make here. I understand Peter's cry so much more than I did then. The longer I live, the more I feel the, the depth of the cry for Jesus to come back, to come back soon. The longer I live, the more I long for the new heavens and the new earth. I have experienced enough of this broken world to know that when Jesus returns, he brings with him a beauty that has not been broken by our sin. He brings with him a beauty that I cannot even conceive of. He brings with him a wholeness that I have never experienced. He will do what he has done before. This is what Peter says. He will destroy everything. But what comes after that? A new creation. All new. Gone are the days of exile. Gone are the, is the, 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 the sin of Adam and Eve that has tainted all of us since that day. Gone is the, the exile of the garden and the loss of that perfect creation. And what comes with it now is this new creation in which we are made whole and brought home. A new heaven and a new earth. 
God is always creating, always. And this new heaven and this new earth will not be colored by the brokenness of this one. We won't need hospitals or funeral homes. We won't need Isaiah 117 houses or life outreach centers. We won't need cancer medications or ambulances. I know I long for Jesus to come back because I've had 22 years longer to see what sin does to our lives and to our world. I've had 22 years longer to know my own sin. I've had 22 more years to struggle against my own sin and to know I will never defeat it this side of home. And so I long for Jesus to come back because I long to see an end to my sin. I long for Jesus to come back because I long to see an end to brokenness and to broken marriages and to broken homes and to orphaned children and to dying people and dying friends and pandemics and all of it. I long to see it all ended and all done. And Peter says this new heaven and this new earth will be a place where righteousness dwells. Sin will be no more. Sorrow will be gone. As we wrap up this theme we've been tracing for a year now, what we realize is that when Jesus comes, he's not just coming to set things right. When he comes, it is quite literally a homecoming. He is bringing us home. All of history, all of history is bearing witness to this reality. We are not home yet. We are not home yet. But when Jesus comes, we will finally find that place that we've always known, but we've never been. That place that we've always longed for and ached for, but never actually been there to call it home. So this morning, my cry, my deep, full-throated, passionate cry this morning and I hope that you can cry out with me in your own heart and in your own mind is Lord Jesus come quickly I want to go home I want to go home I want to be done with this 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 body that's breaking down this sin that I cannot get me get get past this death that is all around us this sickness that robs us of joy I want to be done with all of it. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Take us home. Listen, if you're not in Christ, you can't say that. Because Lord Jesus, come quickly is the most terrifying thing you can pray. I'm going to leave it at that this morning. And I'll just ask you that question. How do you pray that prayer? And I pray that you would be found in Christ. And that soon we would all be home. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we do not, um, we do not want to miss these words of warning. 
Father, we do not want to assume. We do not want to assume that that day when it comes will be a good one for us. We want to know that it will be the most beautiful of days for us because we are in Jesus. So Father, I pray now if there's anyone in this room that does not know that, that today they would make that right. They would turn from their sin. They would pursue righteousness and godliness. And that we cling to the hope that we have in Christ. The mercy that we, we do not deserve. And that that justice would be on Christ. And that in place of wrath, we would receive righteousness. Father, I pray for those of us in here that are in Christ, that, that, that cling to that hope and that promise. I pray that you will teach us to long for your coming again. That when we are tempted to doubt, when we are tempted to, to wonder, when we are tempted to be in a place where, where we say, I just don't know, what does it matter? I just gotta, I gotta get through the day. Father, I pray that you would correct our minds, correct our hearts, and that we would not dismiss your coming, but that we would live our lives in light of your coming. Make us more godly, more righteous as we pursue you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.